Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and the sudden improvement of weather. Uh, today I'd like to try and talk a little bit more about a concept I brought up in the last podcast, which is the use of parametricity uh, to describe idealized models of cryptography. So this is sort of a, I think I'm probably going to write a blog post about, so I thought I might as well chat a bit about it to gather my thoughts and hopefully share them with you as well. So I guess to set the stage, let's probably first talk about idealized models in general, you know, talk about generic groups and whatnot, and then talk about how we can use parametricity from, which is an idea from like type theory and functional programming to capture idealized models in a more, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what the best adjective there is. I was about to say efficient, but it's not about like performance or something. It's more so elegant. I, I'd say elegant. I like that idea. So um, the anecdote I gave in last, in yesterday's episode was about uh, random oracles and hash functions. I think the running example for this one should be generic groups. So in cryptography, often you have various crypto systems based on assumptions related to groups. So uh, generally, the one term I like to use is the so-called cryptographic group. So it's uh, it's an added group with addition and it's commutative, and you can also multiply elements by some field of scalars. Strictly speaking, uh, it's actually a module to that field. That's probably a better way to describe what's going on, but usually the term is just group. So for example, uh, an elliptic curve with Q elements would satisfy this, right? Because uh, you can add the things together and Q is prime and you can also sort of do scalar multiplication where you add a point to itself n times. Um, and if you add a point to itself Q times, you get back uh, the identity element which is often called the point of infinity for curves, but I don't, I don't really like this terminology. Even though it's accurate in the context of algebraic geometry, but I think for cryptography, it's not a very enlightening term. But you could also have groups based on just finite field. For example, you know, a group based on multiplication in a finite field also works. Uh, it's not as great, but anyhow. So one approach, and so the sort of standard model of cryptography is that you define various hard problems. For example, one simple problem is the challenger gives the adversary uh, a point, which is some random scalar a times the generator g, so a times g. And the goal of the adversary is to find out what a is, just seeing a times g, and this should be hard uh, if the group is secure. That's the Diffie-Hellman assumption or problem. Uh, one related one is what's called the computational Diffie-Hellman assumption. Well, no, actually, sorry, that's the discrete logarithm assumption. Uh, then you have the computational Diffie-Hellman assumption, or CDH. And basically what that, that's saying is if I give you A times G and B times G, it should be difficult to compute AB times G. And this is useful because in, when doing Diffie-Hellman key exchange, the idea is that AB times G is the shared secret. And so, whereas A and B are public uh, points. And so just seeing the public point shouldn't be enough to derive the shared secret. That's the intuition there. But uh, the issue is that there's no sort of, at least for the groups we know, there's no sort of reduction from CDH to discrete logarithm itself. 
So it's a slightly stronger assumption in some sense. Now, one way to get around this is to, well, I guess I should probably add some more assumptions to illustrate how the problem grows. So another variant is the decisional Diffie-Hellman assumption, where instead of trying to compute C equals AB times G, you try and distinguish a random point from C. So basically, you're given something which may or may not be the thing you were supposed to compute earlier, and now you're trying to decide whether or not it is. And that's even slightly harder, because you can imagine that, well, it's difficult to find it with no information, but if you're given the point, you could recognize it, potentially. You can imagine that being true. So, and, and those three ones are pretty standard, but then you have some variants, like the one more discrete logarithm assumption, or sort of you give an n points, you need to calculate an n plus one uh, discrete log. Um, and there's various other assumptions that show up. Sometimes for advanced schemes that use groups, you often need somewhat esoteric assumptions, which sort of boil down to saying, well, the way we use groups uh, in the context of this scheme is, is fine. And so one alternative to having all these various assumptions, or in other words, a way to study whether or not these assumptions are reasonable, is to try and model groups in a more abstracted way. And so these are where various forms of generic group models come in. So the idea is, well, you model adversaries which only use the essential parts of a group. And for example, maybe you want to model adversaries which don't look at the particular encoding of elements. Uh, and this models a group which is essentially perfect. Um, if you had a perfect cryptographic group, uh, you, what things would be secure? And the advantage is that many of these assumptions then reduce to each other if you assume that the group is perfect. Now, assuming that a group is perfect is a falsifiable assumption, but as we discussed uh, in the last episode, as long as it has a somewhat tangible collection to, to the standard model, in this case being factorial, which I believe should be the case, uh, we'll see then a bit when you define these things, but the generic group model is sort of a, still a useful way to analyze systems, and it's certainly better than null analysis, and at some point, arguably, it becomes better to just do generic group stuff than to try and develop esoteric assumptions and, and sort of base yourself on that. Or at the very least, if you're going to develop an esoteric assumption, it's a good idea to try and see that it reduces to the discrete logarithm in, the, in a generic group model. What's interesting is that there are actually a few different ways of defining what generic groups are and how they should be represented. Uh, in fact, there's like a, a gamut of papers recently uh, analyzing these these different uh, things, and I'll probably link those in the, in the show notes. So I'll talk about two of them, because there's one in particular that I'd like to elaborate on called the, the type-safe model. Um, at least that's the term that Mark Sandra used in this recent paper. It's also called the Maurer model after William Maurer, the, the cryptographer, uh, who's, I don't think I've talked about um, his infamous paper that I, that I like a lot on this one. Uh, it's a blog post about that one too. So anyhow, the two models. Well, um, I'll talk about the the one we're not going to dwell on first. So that's the sort of Shoup from Victor Shoup uh, model of generic groups. So that one, the idea is, well, we don't want the adversary to rely on the encoding of the group. So what we do is we just say, well, we, we choose a random encoding uh, at the start of the, the game. And the idea is both the, the game itself and the adversary attacking the game have uh, access to this random group. And the basic idea is that 
You can imagine this random encoding as sending scalars to points on the group by multiplying on the by the generator. And the idea is initially this encoding is empty. Uh, you can imagine sampling a random value each time we need to encode a new a new scalar. And it's just subject to the constraint that linear relations hold, as you might expect for the group. So if I've asked for the encoding of a plus b as scalars, then I can also add ask the the group itself to add the, them together via this sort of generic interface. So simplifying a bit, there's basically two operations you could do. One is you can sort of ask for the random encoding of some scalar, which is sort of equivalent to multiplying by g, uh, the generator, or you can ask for a group operation on two points that have already been encoded. So you, you're given sort of two randomly encoded points, and then you ask it to do a scalar multiplication between the, the, those points and add them together. So you can imagine this is like providing it with P and Q, which are just random strings because the encoding is completely random. And then it comes up and it gives you the encoding for A times P plus B times Q, or A and B are scalars you provided. And this sort of tries to model a group where the encoding is completely non-essential because it's just chosen at random. Um, and so any algorithm that does stuff in this generic group is sort of relying on the inherent structure of a group itself, or at least it should be. Um, now, one way to sort of take this further is to, uh, and this sort of uh, generalization, although it's not generalization because it's not a stronger or weaker model, model as, well, as we'll see in a bit. But uh, one way to take this further is to say, well, this random encoding thing is somewhat non-essential. Really what we want to say is that the adversary is just doing group operations and not manipulating uh, the encoding of the group, or the game is not doing that as well. For example, if you look at like the definition of the discrete logarithm or CDH or whatever games, we're never making use of the encoding. Like We're sort of manipulating these group elements symbolically. And there are different ways to encode this. Um, Often, oftentimes you have a somewhat vague encoding of it as like, well, you know, you, the adversary doesn't look at uh, the encoding or stuff like that. The algebraic group model sometimes has some of this language in it. Another way is like uh, Mark Zandry does this in his reformulation of this model uh, in his paper. Uh, he defines it via like a special kind of circuit. So you can imagine adversaries as being defined and games as generally as being defined via Boolean circuits, right? And so then, you know, some of the inputs are the random coins the adversary game uses, and then the other inputs are, you know, messages received from the outside, etc. And the idea is you augment this circuit model with sort of symbolic uh, group values. And the idea is that the only thing you can do with these sort of group wires is compare them for equality, but otherwise you can't take a group element and then start getting bit wires from it. So you can't, there's no, there's no bits to take from a group element because it's purely symbolic. And you and you describe this via sort of a specific circuit encoding, um, and you know after ten minutes we're finally getting to the crux of the podcast, which is that I think the, having this specific model of computation via the circuitry is not necessary to capture this idea of the adversary can't inspect anything about the group. Before we get to that, I should touch upon sort of one. I think conceptual advantage here is that even with random encodings there's still some weird shenanigans you can do which create, create like a, an incomparability between the two models in that by having random labels, you can do stuff like, well, you know, if the label 
first bit is one, I do something, otherwise I do something else. And this is in some sense malformed with respect uh, to the idea of the adversary being generic over the group, because they're inspecting these labels, which are supposed to be, you know, nonsense, but they're still making decisions based off them. So in some sense, it's not relying on a group in a generic way, one could argue, from like a philosophical perspective. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm slowly starting to prefer the the, the sort of type-safe or idealized model that you get in the other sense. Now, one advantage of the, of the randomized encoding model is that it's, it's quite simple to formalize. Um, for example, with this type-safe model, as specified by Xandria, you need this whole, like, well, you don't need it, but one way to do it is, like, by specifying how algorithms and, and games and whatnot are encoded to the circuits, and then defining a special kind of circuit which manipulates group elements symbolically. Um, and this is a very intrusive approach because you, now you need to sort of, uh, you know, go spelunking in terms, of, in terms of the internals of your computational model cryptography and then change stuff out, change the circuit model. Whereas I think, I think definitions of cryptography should stay away from defining a, a concrete computational model. Instead, you should just use the bare bones you need in terms of types and whatnot to define, like, I, I prefer packages and say typical proofs, but you could prefer other systems. But the computational model in terms of like interactive Turing machines, whatnot, that's completely non-essential in my view. And where was I going with this? Yeah, so there's separations between type safe and whatnot. Um, and the advantage of the, of the randomized encoding models that you can just formulate this as sort of like a, a standard game that you attach to this to the thing. You have an extra package representing the random randomized encoding group, and then you have fun with that very simple to define in like states of proofs, for example, which is sort of one thing, one reason why I was initially leaning towards that when I started looking into these things. But recently I've come to appreciate the type safe or model much more. But I think the definition via circuitry, which is interesting to consider because whenever you define like abstract semantics of cryptographic models, you do want to consider concrete models of computation as instantiations of the semantics, right? Um, basically you're giving semantics to the, to well, I think I'm con confusing up my paintbrushes here. Basically, you can define the semantics of what the model should mean based on sort of axiomatic assumptions, but then you can instantiate a model that, that conforms to those semantics. Anyhow, my point is that I don't like the fact that it defines the model of computation explicitly, as I've you know said like five times now. But I think one way to avoid this is using a bit of type theory. So I guess we should talk about parametricity a little bit. So basically, um. And type theory, the, the sort of cool is that you want to take functions. That's the main object of study. Well, one sort of functional programming perspective on type theory is that you want to take functions and you want to assign them types. For example, if I have a function which takes in a string and then, you know, computes its length, you can see that it is a function from string to int, right? And if it takes two strings and adds their length together, that's string and string to int, et cetera, et cetera. And the goal of type theory is to sort of, you know, define well-assigned types. So if I try to say, oh, this function is of type string to Boolean, well, depending on your type theory, that may not work. Because you could say, well, you know, integer is not uh, Boolean. Maybe you add implicit cast, then it works out. Um, and one interesting feature you can have in type theory is quantification. So for example, I can say, you know, one classic example of this is a function that just returns its argument. Now this function, you could give it the type string to string and it would work because if you take in a string and return it, I mean, that's, then you're, you're satisfying that, that type definition for sure. Um, 
but this function could also be given the type int to int. So one way of looking at this is that for each type, you have a function which takes an element of that type and returns an element of the same type. And, and so you could see this as like a collection of functions. And you can imagine a non-uniform definition of it where you say, well, if it's int, I return the argument plus one. So I can inspect the type argument and then do different things. And so that's sort of a non-parametric version of it because you're quantifying, but basically you're giving a function for each type, but the, the functions are potentially non-uniform. But in type theory, often you want to consider uniform families of functions. So what you want to say is that I want to have one function, which returns its input, and I want it to give it to give it the type for all types, t, t, t is an input, returns t as an output. And in particular, this single function has the one type that's quantified, which means that the function can't inspect or do anything non-uniform with the type it receives. It can't do something different for ints versus strings because it's quantified in terms of the typing itself. And that's an extremely useful property called parametricity. And it becomes very interesting once you start to have additional inputs that you take in. For example, in Haskell, one addition you can have is just quantifying types, because if you have a function that works for all types, there's not much you can do for it. You can, you can do things like, well, if I take in a function that takes that from A to B, and you give me a B, then I return you an A just by sort of, or A to B, you give me an A, then I return you a B. And you can do that for all types because you just sort of, you know, call the function. Uh, so you can do like stuff like that, but otherwise there's not much you can do with this plain quantification. So often you add what, what are called type class assumptions. So one example of this is maybe you assume that you have a type and there's some, some way to compare two members of that type for a quality or something. And so then you get a natural function, which takes in two of these elements and then returns whether or not they're equal, because by assumption, there's a way to compare these two things for equality. So you can imagine there being a class of types which have this comparable function given to you. And one way of modeling this is that you take in a function to compare them as an extra argument. So the type would be for all a comparing function of a, so a, a goes to bool, and then given that function, you can return bool. Or you return a function which takes in two elements of type a and returns bool. Usually you use higher order functions for this. So the idea is like, you add an extra argument to the function, which is sort of the extra assumptions you make about what you can do with the type. So maybe you assume that there's a way to convert the type to bytes or something. Uh, and one way of modeling this is, well, you just quantify over all types, and then you take a dictionary, which gives you, you know, one kind of function for each kind of thing you can do with that type. So maybe I can have a type where I say, okay, I want to be able to compare the two elements of this type of equality. I want to be able to convert an integer to this type. And I want to be able to convert this type to an integer, you know, stuff like that. And then one way of doing this is having the dictionary be, be an extra argument, or we can sort of implicitly do this kind of dictionary moving around by using what's called a type class or a trait and, and, and rest would be the equivalent. And the idea is, well, I quantify over all types, which have an instance of this, uh, you know, dictionary of functions that I can use. So for example, I can say, you know, for all elements that implement equality, you know, I, I do something with them. And then, but what's important to note is that the function has to type check in this universally quantified sense. So 
the function is it can't do anything beyond using the functions that are provided to it in the dictionary. And if it type checks it, it's not going to be able to inspect things beyond that. For example, if there's no way to convert the type to bytes based just on the class alone and what functions the class provides, there's uh, no way to inspect the encodings of elements. You're just giving them symbolically. You can do whatever functions uh, the thing lets you, lets you do, but beyond that, you can't do much. And so then the basic idea here is that if you have a class representing a, a group or uh, an FQ module, uh, then you could sort of do interesting things there. So the idea is you would have a generic function, which given a scalar uh, produces a, a point on the group via multiplying by the generator. You can access the generator itself. Uh, that's another function. And then you can also add, uh, you can add and multiply by a scalar. Uh, those are the other two functions you're given. And so the idea is like a generic algorithm would be just one that has type for all groups g dot something, uh, quantifying over this class of groups. And the idea is that if a function type checks in that quantified sense, by parametricity, it can't do anything with like the encoding of the group. All it can do is sort of just manipulate the group in a very generic way. And so one way to, to think about this is that if you have a circuit, you know, a Xandru circuit with all these sort of symbolic elements, that it would type check successfully as this universally quantified type. But you could also just say, well, we assume some model of computation, but we don't really care. We just assume we have like some type theory for a you know pseudocode programming language we use to describe cryptographic games and adversaries, and then we just assume that you know the adversary in the game type check, <laughs> according to to this model. And so if you assume that the package has type, you know, for all groups dot here's a package and the adversary has type for all, you know, groups, uh, here's a something that uses the package, then you sort of, you sort of resolve this issue because you, you've naturally sort of cheated and define and sort of, you know, you assume that the type theory exists <laughs> and that you use that to sort of uh, instantiate generic models of cryptography. And what's neat is that I think this approach is much more amenable to sort of the, the metacryptographic analysis because it's much easier to see that like, well, if I have a class of adversaries that are parameterized, this becomes strictly weaker because any adversary that, that type checks as like a quantified type uh, will also type check as like a concrete instantiation. Of, I can sort of give it a, a concrete type and now it's no longer quantified, but I get a specific adversary out of it. So in particular, if uh, if something reduces in the standard model, then surely it should reduce in the you know quantified model because there's sort of less adversaries <laughs> to go around now. And same with games, you can sort of, so you may, so there should be a natural functor uh, between a quantified model and, and a non-quantified model. Or the opposite, uh, non-quantified to quantified, based on the discussion we had yesterday. And so one important thing that arises about this is I think, I haven't explored this fully yet, but I think the, the sort of differences point out between random encoding groups and idealized groups become much clearer once you have this sort of quantified sense, because then you can see the random group as sort of being a particular group that you can instantiate with. And so then there being a separation isn't all that surprising because the quantified model is like strictly, removes strictly more adversaries because there's just less you can do because it's, you can't even look at the encoding at all. Um, I've talked about the advantages for, you know, metacryptographic purposes as well already. Um, one huge advantage of this approach is that you can, it makes it, it generalizes much more easily to other models of cryptography. 
uh, well, not other models, but other idealized models you'd want to do. So for example, let's say I'm trying to model the security of ECDSA, and now I need to be able to get the x-coordinate of points because that's used for some stupid reason in the signature algorithm. Well, I can now you know, define an augmented group with an extra notion of, well, I can get the x-coordinate and some extra axioms that need to hold for a group to be a member of this class. But then I could universally quantify over all, you know, ECDSA, ECDSA groups or something, right? Um, so, so that would be useful because then you could sort of study, you know, the generic, uh, ge the generic ECDSA group model. There's a paper by Shoup and Groth where they define the sort of ECGGM using randomized encodings to analyze uh, various uh, notions of ECDSA security, if you had additive tweaks and pre-signatures. And so this parameterization thing gives you a natural recipe to create idealized models of, of cryptographic stuff. Uh, for example, you have an idealized uh, ring model, maybe an idealized lattice model. Those, uh, I don't know if those have been developed, but you could imagine those being developed based on this recipe. And that seems to be to be very convenient and then also it opens up the possibility of you know generic hardness generic separation results for quantification so maybe you could uh, show when a quantified model is not going to be equivalent to the standard model uh, just looking at the sort of dictionary and what the, what the class provides itself so that would be interesting uh, to see and then you can imagine sort of uh, lifting the results showing that there's sort of an incomparability between randomized encodings and idealized groups and you can lift that to a much more general setting of like a randomized encoding of a class versus an idealized uh, quantified encoding of it. Um, and a generic separation like result like that would be quite interesting. And I think it might be, might be feasible. And yeah, I think so. I think this approach is, uh, has a lot of promise. Um, and I'm, I'm quite excited about it. I should probably try and write up the details. Some sketches to me seem to be a bit... Uh, hard to fill in, like ID, like some kind of, you know, functorial property, uh, but proving that is a, is a bit, a bit harder, it seems. But I think, I think there's like a lot of potential quantifications you could do that, that, that haven't been done, done yet. Uh, for example, like, uh, right now group actions are sort of being studied this, like an idealized model of like some isogeny schemes. And I think this would provide a natural recipe to do that as well. Right? Of course, one, one disadvantage is that you need to sort of introduce more type theory um, into sort of your notions of games and adversaries. But I think I think really you want to do this anyways because it's almost implicitly being used. For example, very often when sort of groups are being thrown around, you sort of implicitly assume that uh, the game is checking the encoding of the group and sort of rejecting, you know, points that aren't on the curve at all. And so... Uh, introducing type theory seems to be a natural evolution of the various pseudocodes we've developed to describe games and whatnot. Another idealized model that I think, well, not another general thing that I might think be useful is that you can define sort of intermediate models much more easily. For example, one thing you could imagine is like a generic elliptic curve model, which sort of models the extra features that elliptic curves have compared to generic groups. Um, I think that might be very interesting. And the complexity of, of doing this and sort of the assuring yourself that this model is reasonable is sort of alleviated by just having to define a type class which represents what you can do with an elliptic curve and what axioms hold. So I think that would be, you know, very useful potentially. 
And I think such intermediate models, it's also become, it also becomes much easier to compare different quantified models between themselves because you just have to compare the type classes. And that's that's like a very big benefit for all this metacryptographic stuff, because uh, if I can get generic functors between quantified models just by comparing the type classes, uh, you know, that's very good. Uh, for example, uh, if I have a generic elliptic curve model, uh, then I get a generic group from that, right? Like, if something is a generic elliptic curve, if something is an elliptic curve, then surely it's a, it's a group. And so then this naturally means that there must exist a functor from the model of, uh, of, of cryptography quantified over elliptic curves to the model of cryptography quantified over groups, because basically you lose some adversaries that make uh, use of the specific uh, elliptic curve uh, functionalities. And so you, then any, uh, any sort of category of reductions between five classes gives you a category of functors between uh, metacryptographic models, right? Um, well, between cryptographic models, right? So, so then you're considering the, the metacryptographic category of uh, cryptographic models and functors between them. Right? Uh, I, think, I think that was a, enough type theory for today. I don't know about you. Hopefully this episode was enjoyable uh, and I'll probably try and turn these thoughts into a blog post uh, by the end of the week so you can look forward to that as well. Otherwise, always a pleasure to have you listen to my podcast and I hope to catch you on the next one. See you around.